to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. Your host is Jessica Pirro. In today's program, we will provide awareness and education on various types of crises, the impact they have on one's well-being, and provide help to empower hope for you or someone you love. This program will help you understand various types of crisis situations by hearing from experts in the crisis response field, as well as those with lived experience through a difficult time. Now, here's Jessica Pirro. Welcome. Thank you so much for tuning into the journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Uh, I am your host, Jessica Pirro, and I'm excited to um, bring to you a conversation today about trauma-informed care. So the title of our show is Moving from What's Wrong with You to What Happened to You, a Trauma-Informed Care Approach. The research is clear that trauma is Um, at the root of many physical and mental health problems that people experience. Childhood trauma is particularly damaging and has a negative impact on a child's development and throughout the lifespan. Mental illness, drug addiction, obesity, heart disease, and diabetes are just some of the results of adverse childhood experiences. Our guest today will talk about what's known as the ACE study and the dramatic results about trauma and its impact. They will also talk about some grassroots efforts uh, to shift our approach and perspective in responding to trauma and steps to build a trauma-informed community. So to set the stage for our discussion, I just wanted to share with you a few statistics. 75% of women and men in treatment for substance abuse report that they have trauma histories. Children who experience child abuse and neglect are 59% more likely to be arrested as a juvenile and 28% more likely to be arrested as an adult and 30% more likely to commit a violent crime. And nearly 80% of female offenders with mental illness report having been either physically or sexually abused. So as we start to begin this discussion, um, if you have any questions for our guests or about the topic that we're discussing, please email us at jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That is J-P-I-R-R-O, voiceamerica at gmail.com. So I want to take a few minutes here to just introduce my guests who are joining me today. Uh, My first guest is Rachel Wilson. Rachel graduated from the University at Buffalo with a dual master's degree in social work and public health. Her undergraduate work was in global gender studies and sociology. Rachel's work experience includes working here at Crisis Services, which I proudly serve as the CEO in Buffalo, New York. Um, And she was a domestic violence case manager as well as a hotline counselor for our New York State Domestic and Sexual Violence Hotline. She also has past work experience as an assistant field coordinator with the Western New York Area Labor Federation. As part of her graduate work, she worked at the University of Buffalo's Institute on Trauma and Trauma-Informed Care, assisting with coordinating community-wide training and education, strategic planning, and helped develop an adverse childhood experience study for Erie County. Um, She currently serves as secretary for the Coalition for Economic Justice Board of Directors, and this year was awarded the University of Buffalo's Graduate Student Employee of the Year. My other guest, who's a returning guest uh, to the show, is uh, Lieutenant David Mann. Uh, Dave Mann has been a member of the Buffalo Police Department for 30 years and is a lieutenant in charge of the department's sex offense section since 1995. The SOS, the sex offense section, investigates cases of sexual assault, domestic violence, child abuse, elder abuse, missing persons, and juvenile delinquency that occurs in the city of Buffalo. 
Lieutenant Mann is a SAMHSA certified trainer on trauma and is a Health Foundation of Central and Western New York Leadership Fellow. So I want to welcome both Rachel and Dave to the show today um, to help us get an understanding of trauma as well as the concept of trauma-informed care. So to get our conversation started, can we talk with our listeners about just what is the definition of trauma? Sure. So um, trauma is a very broad topic, um, and it includes events um, such as uh, interpersonal violence, abuse, uh, could be experiencing a um, extreme car accident, uh, experiences of war, um, a house fire, and a sudden loss of a, a loved one. Um, so there's a lot of things that sort of fall under the the umbrella of traumatic experiences. Um, And what's really important about uh, trauma, understanding trauma, is that it's a very individualized experience. And so, um, for an example, two people could be in a car accident and one person could experience that as traumatic um, and the other person may not. Uh, And so it's not only the event that occurs, uh, but also how the person experiences that event. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think what's important is to know, too, like you mentioned, it's sudden and unexpected. This isn't the norm or shouldn't be the norm of a person's day-to-day experience. Um, And so understanding kind of what trauma, uh, what the definition of trauma is, is really important as we we set the stage for this discussion. Now, I know, Rachel, you had mentioned um, examples of interpersonal trauma. So Mm -hmm. things like childhood sex abuse, Um, domestic violence, um, that personal connection that the trauma would have on somebody. I know you mentioned the loss of um, somebody, uh, a death, unexpected death. Um, But I think, you know, when we look at trauma in the work that we do here at Crisis Services in Buffalo, New York, a lot of what we deal with is that type of abuse by a caregiver, a loved one, or a friend that is a traumatic experience for somebody. Um, Because our our guests or our listeners are worldwide. It's an international show. Um, there's also that external piece of trauma. Um, and you mentioned a few of those, but it is important to highlight um, war as a, as a big piece of this conversation and the impact that that has on somebody. Um, but also then the uncontrollable experiences of being a victim of a crime, um, as well as just those unexpected losses, which I just feel um, really can have an impact on somebody. So I think what's important as we talk about this is um, understanding, you know, the impact of trauma on uh, our young children and then how that plays out in their adulthood, which we'll be talking a lot about as we get the show going. But can we talk about the types of developmental trauma and the impact on children? Well, one of the... uh Things that we'd like to talk about today are the is the ACE study, and the ACE study, uh, the initial study was done between 1995 and 1997 in San Diego County in California. And it was done by uh, Kaiser Permanente, which is an insurance provider in uh, well across the country, but in that county in in San Diego. And what they did was they surveyed adults who uh, went for physicals, for routine physicals. And they asked them in uh, that survey about experiences that they might have had in childhood. 
So specifically, they asked if uh, they had in their childhood experienced any emotional, physical, or sexual abuse, whether uh, they'd ever seen their mother treated violently, whether there was substance abuse or mental illness uh, that was experienced by some member of the household they grew up in, whether their parents were separated or divorced, or any member of uh, their household was incarcerated, and then a couple of questions about emotional or physical neglect. And what they uh, found in this study, um, first, I don't know if you know anything about uh, San Diego County, but it is, relatively speaking, a very wealthy uh, county. Um, and uh, so this was not uh, a disadvantaged uh, population, per se. This mm -hmm. was the entirety of, of San Diego County, and including places like La Jolla and fancy places like that. And um, in spite of uh, the uh, rather wealthy demographic, what they found was that most people um, had experienced at least one of these, what they called adverse childhood experiences, and that uh, a large number, a larger number than I think the, they expected when they set out to do the study, a large number of people had experienced one or more of these adverse experiences. So they took all of that information and then they looked at the adult health and mental health histories of the people who had taken the survey. And what they found was uh, nothing short of a revolution because they found some of the things that we might expect, that people who had a number of these adverse experiences had what we would kind of call like adjustment issues, if that's the right term. So there was uh, higher rates for people who had adverse experiences higher rates of things like drug or alcohol addiction or smoking um, or uh, um, issues that we would call promiscuity. So like early, um, early experiences with sexuality and teen pregnancy. But it also found a lot of physical ailments that occurred at higher rates in adult uh, life. And I think that that was the most unexpected um, so they found higher rates of diabetes, obesity, certain kinds of heart disease, and um, also higher rates of mental illness. So taken together, what the study uh, showed, and, and by the way, this study has been replicated a number of times over the last 20 years uh, with different populations. And so we're, we're talking about uh, thousands and thousands of people that had taken the survey and then they looked at them the same way. And what they found, um, as I said, it, it's maybe it's, it's not a revolution, but it should be a revolution. Mm -hmm. What they found is that the effects of childhood trauma are far greater and far uh, more longer lasting um, on the individual than we would have, we would have thought. Because mm -hmm. that physical aspect of it uh, just shows how traumatic it is. And there, there's been lots of stuff going on recently about um, research into effects of trauma on the brain and on brain chemistry and right, stuff like that. Right. But all of that is just reinforcing what the, um, what the ACE study showed. And that's that if children are exposed 
to traumatic events in childhood, and if that trauma isn't addressed, that it has lifelong implications, and it's pervasive in society. So many of the things that we consider to be social problems or medical problems or mental health problems have uh, trauma as a root. Well, I think to to add to that, so to sort of step back to the conversation we were having about traumatic events uh, and to tie it into this uh, adverse childhood experiences survey. So what we're finding out um, is that, you know, so you have you can have a single traumatic event, which is often described as a uh, uh, simple trauma, right? So it's a one-time experience that occurs. Um, and that can certainly have uh, long-term effects for the individual. Um, but that there's also this thing that we're calling complex trauma, which is multiple traumatic events that happen mm-hmm. over a period of time. So it's not that car accident. It's not the um, you know one-time assault. It's childhood abuse. It's extreme poverty. Um, hunger, things like this, right, that over a period of time, especially for children, um, create these changes in the brain and create some real long-term effects. So there, it's important to make that distingu- distinguish between the one-time event and the long-term. Absolutely. And I think that especially for, for kids, I mean, it, it's at a younger age to have a trauma happen and impact where they're at developmentally on their ability to attach to their caregiver who might be the one who is abusing them or is not caring for them. Really, it, it impacts not only the physical, but that emotional well-being of their future, um, of how they will interact with their family, with their friends, and in the future as adults with relationships. So, it, it, it's it's really a, a it, although it may not be revolutionary, it really is that we need to be very clear about when our young children are impacted in some capacity. What is that that impact for that long term success of them as an adult and as a you know an individual in society? I think is such a an immediate correlation that as providers, if it's medical, if it's social work, if it's what school personnel, is really how to make those connections when our children are telling us that these are these issues are going on so that um, we can provide them with the support they need to recover and maybe help to get them on the path for a more successful outcome um, than when a trauma isn't addressed. Right. Uh, so I think that, I mean, um, talking about the changes in the brain is, um, you know, maybe an important uh, thing to discuss here. So Right. As children are growing, their brains are developing. They're not, uh, you know, obviously they don't have the same capacity as adults. Mm -hmm. And so they're learning about the world, their place in the the world, you know, their understanding of safety and security in the world. Um, And if that... is happening at the same time as repeated abuse and extreme stress and adversity, um, then that actually creates physical changes within the brain. Um, And it changes uh, behaviors, it changes uh, the the stress hormones in the body. So that that leads to, um, you know, Lieutenant Mann was talking about some of the long-term health effects. And that's really because children who face adversity um, have, you know, higher uh, blood pressure, higher rates of stress hormones. And so there's, their heart is working harder, their lungs are working harder uh, throughout their life, leading to these um, 
sort of long-term health effects. So it's it's behavioral, it's physical, um, but it's also cognitive because, mm-hmm. you know, we understand the world. I, you know, I feel safe currently. Um, and, but maybe someone who has experienced a lot of abuse in their life would not feel safe in the current situation, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, sort of their understanding of whether they can trust other people changes and, you know, sort of their, their understanding of their value in the world changes through their development um, and, you know, the adversity that happens. Absolutely. And I, I think the, the pieces, and we'll, we'll get into it a little bit in the next segment about the principles of, of what trauma-informed care is, but safety um, and the ability to trust and is, is so critical, especially, if, you know, for everybody, but for a young child to understand who they can rely on and who they can turn to to keep them safe um, gets very complex when your caregiver or your loved one that's caring for you isn't providing that right from the beginning at that young age. So um, we have a lot that we're going to be getting into to have a good understanding of what the ACE study is, as well as what is trauma-informed care and what you can be doing um, in your communities, in your workplace, um, as well as just in your family um, to take care of one another, um, to make sure that we provide a more safe uh, environment for those that um, we love and take care of. So um, we uh, will continue this conversation. Um, So stay with us. You are listening to the journey, stories of crisis and hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Much of the time, the illnesses that people feel are simply symptoms, and they mask the root cause of what the real health problem is. You can take back control of your own health, starting with Billionaire Healthcare. This program is hosted by Ashley Black. Our program will introduce you to fascia, which is the knowledge of the living matrix. This bit of knowledge can bring you the health secrets that only the rich and famous have known until now. Listen Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Tune in every Tuesday for C. diff, spores, and more with hosts Nancy Kerala and Dr. Chandra Bali Ghosh. Our program is to provide information about C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and more. Nancy is a C. diff survivor, healthcare professional, and the founder and executive director of the C. diff Foundation. And Dr. Ghosh is the chairperson of research and development for the C. diff Foundation. Together with their guests, we'll explore infection prevention, treatments, environmental safety, and more. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments about the show. Please send an email to jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That's J-P-I-R-R-O, voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the journey. Here again is Jessica Pira. Welcome back, everyone, and thanks so much for tuning in today. Uh, my guests are Rachel Wilson. 
Wilson and Lieutenant David Mann, and we are having a discussion about trauma as well as what is trauma-informed care. So in this segment, we'd like to, to kind of address that, that question um, so people who are listening in can, can understand what that, that term means. So Rachel, can you talk a little bit about what is trauma-informed care? Yeah, so, you know, we were talking earlier about uh, sort of what is what is trauma and the impacts of that. And so um, through sort of decades of working with um, clients who have experienced adversity in, in childhood and traumatic events, um, you know, we've realized that a lot of the ways that our systems are, the way that we care for people, the way we educate people, um, could actually be sort of re-triggering some of that trauma that they have experienced. So, you know, if they haven't felt safe in childhood, then the way that we're interacting with them as an adult can be reminding them of some of the, that adversity that they have experienced. And so um, with that in mind, uh, there was the development of uh, trauma-informed care. And the idea is, um, so it's an overarching universal sort of uh, universal precautions is the way that I like to think about it. So in the same way, um, you know, people in the medical field would understand that we have universal precautions for bloodborne illnesses. We, you know, we make sure that we wear gloves when interacting with blood. We don't reuse needles, etc. So, and that's because, you know, we don't know who has an illness right. and who doesn't. Right. And so um, to be safe, we treat everyone the same and we make sure that we're safe around all different types of blood. So the idea is the same with trauma-informed care in that we don't know uh, who has experienced trauma and who has not. Um, and so we treat everyone universally the same with these five principles of trauma-informed care to uh, really try to minimize re-traumatizing people. So um, SAMHSA has, uh, four, the, uh, says that a trauma-informed organization has four R's. So one is that the organization realizes the prevalence of trauma. And, you know, just like we were talking about with the Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey and how a large portion of the population had experienced this adversity. So understands that this is a pervasive problem. Um, recognizes the symptoms of trauma, mm -hmm. um, responds uh, to it. So if someone is in your office or in your classroom and seems to be, re is, you know, sort of being triggered by the events that are happening, that you respond to that in a supportive uh, and trauma-informed way. And then finally, that you'll try your best to avoid re-traumatizing people. Right. So that's looking at policies, procedures, the way that we interact with others um, to try to mitigate as much as we can re-traumatization. Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned the principles of trauma-informed care. So I wanted to kind of explain what those are because, again, it really goes back to what we were talking about in the last segment about what we all have to be conscious of when working with each other or working with individuals um, because this isn't just about how we work maybe with a client or maybe a patient, but it's also in our workplaces how we're interacting with each other um, in our businesses as well. So it really has a 
kind of twofold, not only the individuals that we're working with to provide supportive services, but also how do we run our businesses in a safe and, and comforting way so that people can be successful in the workplace. So um, the principles of trauma-informed care, the first one is safety. I know we talked a little bit about that last segment, especially with children, but for everybody, safety is is really uh, an important piece. You want to feel safe in your, your, your workplace. Um, you know, we've seen, unfortunately, a lot of experiences where violence occurs in the workplace, but what are things that we can do in, in our um, policies, procedures, and approaches to provide safety? Uh, trustworthiness. You, can you talk a little bit about what that means um, from that principle? Yeah, so trustworthiness is uh, making sure that all parties involved in an interaction understand um, you know, what is going to happen, why it's happening, when, how, etc. Um, and so everyone is on the sort of the same level um, of what to expect in the interaction. Um, and so also things like confidentiality fall under trustworthiness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so just making sure that when I am interacting with another person, um, I know what to expect from that experience and I'm not surprised Um, and maybe sort of thrown off by what is occurring. Right. Now, another principle is choice. And I know that this um, comes up a lot in in just talking about working with children and and providing them options to choose from. Some people may not always agree that that's the best approach uh, with kids. Too many options can make it (laughs) complex, but it really does get down to a place of their involvement in the choice of what that next step is for them um, will be more supported and they might have more buy-in and more trust in that process. So any other comments about choice or how you've seen that play out in a trauma-informed care environment? Well, I think I think the one thing I would say about choice is that you know we all work within parameters. We all have constraints, uh, and so just like working with children, there are rules, um, but there can also be choice within those rules, and so it can be a very small choice. Um, you know, it could be a choice of a certain color marker or a certain activity at gym time or, you know, so it doesn't have to be the world of choices, but just having, making sure that that person has some buy-in in what's occurring. Right, right. Um, another principle of trauma-informed care is collaboration. What are your, what are your thoughts of that principle and the work that both of you do um, in a trauma-informed care environment? Uh so I think that collaboration is, uh, you know, a hugely critical uh, principle because um, the idea is that you're working with the other person and not working for or um, at the other person. And so the idea being, especially, you know, in looking at the context of clients, right, they're coming to you, they're vulnerable, um, they they are in need of some type of service um, that you have the expertise of and so it puts them in a very vulnerable position and so making sure that we recognize that they are the experts in their life mm-hmm. and working with them to figure out what you know what are their goals and how can we help them accomplish those goals instead of coming in and saying let you know let me help you right <clears throat> and and the last principle um, to share is it just is empowerment and I think that that speaks for itself but um, I think it's important for people to know um, that we have to provide support for others to feel empowered at times they may especially if they've had had 
uh, historical abuse or just not feeling like they have control or power of their own situation. So um, providing empowerment and helping to make those decisions, being part of that choice, being part of that collaboration, I think it, it really does all tie in nicely together of a, a true kind of safety net, if you will, for people um, who um, need support coming from the trauma-informed care concept. Yes. Yeah, so when dealing with these principles when doing training for officers. And obviously, police sometimes need to take direct physical action quickly to to take care of the safety of the situation. So when we're training officers, they sometimes can struggle with, well, how how do you apply these principles that you just listed to police work? But it's getting them to first understand the nature of trauma, which we touched on a little bit. So you might be dealing with a person who in the past has experienced a a trauma or who has been living in an environment where violence is possible at any time. So they were in an abusive household or in a neighborhood with a lot of violence, so they're constantly exposed to violence and the threat of violence. Kids who are exposed to that kind of environment are extremely prone to violence to defend themselves. So if they get the sense that they're at risk, they'll act out physically because they've learned that the best way to protect yourself is to basically to get the first punch in, to not to wait for someone else to, uh, to take a violent or aggressive act against you. So when police come in contact with people, Uh, Going back to what Rachel said about universal precautions, what we're training officers to understand is you may be dealing with someone with a a history of trauma. So the first thing that Rachel talked about was safety. We have to be, as, as law enforcement officers, we have to be careful about the way we're approaching people so that they feel safe with us. So that means not being uh, too aggressive, either physically uh, or closing closing in a personal space or verbally aggressive too soon in the interaction. So as we first come in contact with someone, that we're reassuring the person, uh, both by our behavior and by uh, our verbal behavior, that they're safe with us. And that also tusks touches on trustworthiness, that we're there to help the person, uh, that they have nothing to fear from from us or the intervention. Uh, We talked about choice. So within uh, some circumstances, the choices, as Rachel might be very limited, but there's almost always a way to give the person uh, a choice, and that's to say, can I close the distance between us? Are you more comfortable if I sit or stand? Would you like to sit or stand? Just little choices like that to, to give the person a feeling that they have some control over the situation. And uh, a collaboration is the same way, that to the degree possible, given whatever the circumstances are. And pe- people understand what the police do, so you can imagine all the different kinds of ways this might be applied but that we are in some way doing this together, that the officer, the person that the officer is working with are working together in some way. So like I said before, can we sit down? Um, do you feel more comfortable outside or inside? If there's another person present, you know, uh, do, would you feel better if we um, uh, talk just the two of us and, and away from the other person? And all of these things lead to the final uh, principle of empowerment. And this 
concept of empowerment uh, and the first concept of safety are where we see a lot of situations with interactions between police and uh, members of the public who have a history of trauma go uh, go wrong. Because if they feel that their safety is in question mm-hmm. or if they feel that they lack power, uh, people from with certain histories or, or coming from certain violent environments, that leads them to take aggressive action that then the officer is is forced to respond to. So uh, when you talk about police work and being trauma-informed, trauma that's what we're talking about, the kinds of actions that the police can take, uh, the kinds of situations where police uh, can create uh, a, a feeling in the, in the person they're interacting with that the person feels unsafe or uh, lacks empowerment or control over their own space or their own person unnecessarily. Right. Um, that causes the person to act out physically, and that that always leads to problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think when uh, sort of what's important here in thinking about trauma-informed care, you're hearing us talk a lot about sort of choice and making sure that the person feels that they ha- they're sort of participating in this right. interaction. Mm-hmm. So uh, people who have experienced uh, especially a lot of childhood adversity, but a lot of ab- abuse, sort of long-term abuse, you know, the, the number one sort of theme is that they don't have control over that situation. Um, and they're really vulnerable to, you know, what is happening to them. They're vulnerable to this other person. And so the idea of trauma-informed care is really making sure that that person um, has a, an actual stake in participating and, you know, it, and it's not sort of a false choice, right? They are, they're actually able to be there and present and we are actually engaging with each other in a real way that they can really help control the interaction. Absolutely. And I think what's interesting, and I know just from our work here um, in Buffalo and Erie County, New York, um, there's a lot of discussion about all the different roles um, that interface with the community. If it's police, if it's, you know, crisis centers, if it's the schools, um, you know, what steps they're taking to think about, again, that question we started whole show with is versus what's wrong with you to what's happened to you. Why is this child constantly acting out this time every day? Or why is this thing happening? And no matter what we do, it's not changing. It may not be changing them. It may be changing our approach and how we approach them, how we think about approaching them, how we talk with them. What are the questions we should be asking? And I mean, you know, Lieutenant Mann, you shared that from the police perspective about, you know, maybe people you've seen on a regular basis, if changing the approach to, to how you um, come towards them or talk with them about what their options are when maybe options are limited could really have a a big impact in the success of that interaction and and going back to safety, both the safety of the person, but also, I mean, I think from a police perspective, the safety of law enforcement. And I know we've talked about um, in the trainings that we've done and just conversations we've had in some of our community groups, especially when police have to approach a veteran, for example, because they're coming with a, with not only the, maybe the trauma of the war that they've experienced, but they're also very well trained in how to respond to a threat. Um, and so that can put an interesting dynamic for a law enforcement officer who has to actually maybe arrest a veteran or have to respond to a veteran. Can you speak to that a little yeah, bit? Because it, it is a different different type of response. It's often a really effective way to begin the conversation. 
conversation with law enforcement officers because we, we as a society, we have an understanding of, 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 of PTSD, but just that, that there's a transition period and, and it's, it's in large result a result of public education, but people understand there's a transition from a combat or war zone back to civilian society. And so officers kind of understand that uh, on a very uh, uh, visceral, basic level, they, they, they get that, you know. So then it allows us in the training to move from that very sort of common and understandable experience to maybe experiences that are outside of their um, uh, own direct experience. So, for instance, they need to recognize that we have refugees or immigrants in our community who are coming from uh, war-torn societies or oppressive societies and that the police are often part of that system of oppression. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just going back to the principles that we talked about, to establish early on in the interaction that, that the individual is safe with the police, that the police are, are worthy of trust, that uh, you're creating an atmosphere that the person doesn't feel that they're under attack or under duress from the beginning. And it, this applies to all different kinds of situations. We, in dealing with people who are experiencing mental illness who may be perceiving a threat from all kinds of things that are that are in the normal environment, just for the officers to understand that that they need to establish that the person is safe. If they, if they can start that at the beginning, that they're, they're less likely to have to engage in a physical altercation with the person and all the other uh, negative uh, outcomes that can come when people don't feel safe. Right, right. And I think, you know, it's just those are examples, again, of, of the shift in how we think about things and, and, and a bit of a culture shift as well of, you know, uh, stepping away from the frustration of what's wrong with somebody. Why are they acting out? What is, you know, what's the problem to what has happened to them and what can we do differently to give them support or um, maybe what questions we should be asking to try to, to see has they have they ever talked about maybe what's happened to them? Because for some people, they might not have, you know, shared um, that abuse because they never had a safe place to do that. So I think it puts um, all of us um, in the work that we do um, in an important place of really changing the path for somebody if we change the way we approach them. So, um, you know, this conversation really applies to so many different um, uh, disciplines. And I think for all of our listeners out there, even just in your own families, how you approach each other is, is really critical. So we're going to continue this conversation. We're going to be heading into break. So stay with us. You're listening to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. We are bombarded daily with information about beauty products and anti-aging treatments. Do you know how they have been tested? Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show and Tell with host Shelly Hancock. We'll bring you the top-rated skincare products and treatments tested by Real Transformation Skin Care Centers. We'll motivate you to make the best changes. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Transformational healing includes energy medicine as well as hands-on healing. 
Tune in every week to Transformational Healing with Dr. Bonnie Morrow. If you want to know more about the business and science of energy fields, chakras, and the medical and spiritual community, join our expert guests as we work together to bring you closer to your personal health vision. Transformational Healing is heard live every Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments about the show. Please send an email to jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That's J-P-I-R-R-O, Voice America at gmail.com. Now, back to the journey. Here again is Jessica Pira. Welcome back, everyone. And again, thank you so much for tuning in today. Um, My guests are Rachel Wilson and Lieutenant David Mann, and we've been talking about the issue of trauma, uh, the impact it has not only on individuals but our communities, um, and what we might do differently to help support those that have been impacted by a traumatic situation or just having traumatic histories um, in their childhood. So um, this segment, I'd I'd like to talk a little bit further about the role of um, businesses, organizations, police departments, um, the roles that different disciplines um, could be doing differently um, to to help provide a more trauma-informed care um, environment. So, Rachel, can you talk a little bit about, um, I know at the University of Buffalo, the Institute um, for Trauma and Trauma-Informed Care, they do a lot of work with businesses to assess um, what what their current state is, if you will, of being a trauma-informed care environment. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like and what are things that they find when they do that type of assessment? Yeah, so... um just to start out, you know, um, I think in order to really become a trauma-informed organization, um, it requires a sort of very top-down approach. So it, it requires an administrative buy-in because this is not something that occurs overnight. Uh, you know, we at, so at the Institute on Trauma and Trauma-Informed Care, it's generally a, a five-year um, contractual process with an organization to really make them trauma informed. And so it requires a lot of resource and time investment um, to commit to doing this. And it requires, um, you know, surveying uh, your, the, the clients that you're working with, surveying your staff, um, surveying your administrators to figure out, uh, do people feel safe? Uh, people feel that they have choice, you know, going through all of those principles. Um, you know, one thing I think that's really important is when we first start talking about trauma and certainly working with clients, um, people tend to generally understand that uh, people who are coming to us for services maybe have experienced some adversity in their life. Um, but what we also know is that, you know, given that from the ACE study, two-thirds of the population has experienced at least one adverse childhood experience. That means that also two-thirds of our workforce Mm -hmm. has also experienced some type of adversity. And so it's not only about um, treating our clients with these principles of trauma-informed care, but it's making sure that we're also interacting with our peers, with those that we're um, supervising, with our supervisors, et cetera. And so it's really this very universal um, 
you know, and so that's this kind of goes to the first R in realizing the prevalence of trauma, and that it's not only um, people who are seeking services, but also you know perhaps the person sitting next to you. Um, and I think the other thing, so so it's looking at. Uh, policies and procedures within the agency. So certainly an individual direct service um, provider can change their interactions with clients, but in order for an agency overall to be trauma-informed, it's looking at, um, you know, all policies, procedures, do staff feel that they have a voice in making decisions within the agency? Um, do they feel that they trust their peers? Do they trust their supervisor if they needed something? Um, so it's a very holistic approach. And I, you know, it's interesting because, um, especially coming from my my lens, which is the CEO of a crisis center, and I know in talking with other crisis centers across the country, um, our staff are exposed to traumatic stories every day. I mean, that's the role of a crisis center. So you're on the phone with somebody who's contemplating suicide or the call comes in that they were just raped and need to provide support and guidance or they're struggling with a mental illness and really are having a very difficult time and decompensating and need that intervention. And so how the staff then take all that in every day to do their job and not, you know, and again, like you said, with two thirds of the population having some sort of impact of trauma, that means that employee might have had a history of abuse or maybe has lost somebody to suicide. So that support for staff um, in doing this work, especially if there is that personal experience is really critical because if that's then triggering something for them, their ability to do their work successfully or put the taking an impact on them and taking a step step back maybe in their own recovery of their own um, uh, story um, is really important for for businesses and not-for-profits and providers to really be on top of um, because, you know, you come in and you're like, okay, do your job, but your job is so... Uh, you know, the threat of trauma is part of our everyday conversation here. So we really have to be very conscious of that. And I appreciated your kind of overview of it, that it has to be a complete buy-in from the top down. It can't just be one segment of a business or an organization that's saying, yes, we can do this, because then if it's not supported um, as a whole, then it isn't going to be successful. So, um what are some things I know from a law enforcement perspective? Um, how I mean, how is that buy? Is that buy-in any different than it might be for, let's say, a not-for-profit or uh, just a general business in the community? No, it's the same. It has to be the entire organization has to be part of what the entire organization views as their approach to everything, or or it just won't work. So it has to. It, it, can't just be the the patrol officers or the detectives or people who are dealing with sensitive types of cases like the detectives in my unit are dealing with sexual assault or child abuse. It has to also be the uh, the receptionists. It has to be the people who answer the phone. It has to be the entire organization, or it just uh, it just won't work. You know, I, uh, and it's it. It's complicated because you can sometimes reach people with one part of the one aspect of the issue, and then but then they have difficulty understanding the other part of the issue. So, recently we were doing training with patrol officers about how to deal effectively with victims of sexual assault or rape, 
one of the things we talked about was that many victims experience that as a trauma, and that trauma affects the way people remember things, particularly close after the event. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Basically, we were saying to the officers, don't ask questions uh, about sequence or get hung up on sequence because people who experience a sexual assault as a trauma have trouble with sequence, particularly close after the event. And uh, in doing the training, we were getting a little back and forth with the officers until I pointed out that I would not want any officer under my command to answer questions about a shooting incident. So in other words, an incident where an officer was involved in a shooting immediately after the event for the same reasons. Because trauma, because it's naturally a traumatic event and because trauma affects the way people can remember and recount events uh, that I would not want an officer to be uh, answering questions about the event close after it. And once I talked about those two things together, most officers then understand that. So they may not have had the experience of, of sexual assault or abuse, but they put themselves in the shoes of officers who, who might have to shoot. We all can go through that as part of our training. We have to consider the possibility. And then they understand that there are implications that trauma has on their, on their uh, daily actions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, when we talk about how communities can implement um, a trauma-informed care approach, where, where does a community start? What, you know, we talk a little bit about what we've done here, but I know, you know, you, Rachel, you've probably seen through your experience at, at the University of Buffalo, other communities' work that's been done. What is that first step? So, I don't know that there is, you know, one first step for any uh, community, um, but it really is looking at, uh, so, so here in Western New York, there's the um, Trauma-Informed uh, Community Initiative, which uh, Latim Ann can talk more about in detail how that um, started, but um, basically, uh, you know, it's a, a coalition of people who are in law enforcement, education, behavioral health, and medical who said, you know, we need to take a holistic approach. So in the same way that uh, Lieutenant Mann was talking about, you know, it can't only be the officer, it must also be the receptionist. It can't only be the education system, it must also be the medical system because, um, you know, we often are interacting with the same people in a variety of different ways. Um, And so it's looking at... Um, our laws. It's looking at the ways that we um, are funding organizations and what, you know, um, what, what are the policies, procedures that we're promoting within, within those organizations, etc. Um, and so it's having a conversation with the community, right? So the first R is realizing. So it's education. It's requiring that, you know, we get out in the community and we talk to them about this information. Um, And then it's asking the community, you know, collaboration, right? So ask the community, what is it that you think needs to be changed within your community? Um, And how do we go about that? Uh, And having just some conversations. Right, absolutely. And I think that, you know, um, 
I think in a lot of the work, um, I know just I can speak from the crisis crisis center perspective, we have a specific role. And so, as you mentioned, there's a lot of interface between different disciplines, um, especially like for kids, for example, you have the schools, you have your community centers, you have if if police are involved, um, you have providers in the community, maybe that provide mental health support. We all have to kind of be coming from the same place as best as we can to support that person who's going to be touching all of those different points of access for care. So um, that universal approach, it really kind of brings it full circle um, that the more we can expose our community to, first of all, understanding what trauma is. I think sometimes we get a little desensitized to what a traumatic incident is that, you know, we are exposed to a lot in the media and things like that, but to understand how that impacts people and to hear from them in their own their own words and their own experiences is really important. But um, I know just in some of the work that the, the local coalition has it's done is just doing community education. This is trauma. This is what a traumatic um, incident is. This is interpersonal versus the external. Um, and again, that shift in thinking and the approach of how we ask questions um, could really provide a more safe environment for for those that we're working with. So, um, I mean, it really comes down to awareness and that education. And I know the, the local coalition has, has done a lot of work to that. Uh, Lutime, Ann, can you just share a little bit about maybe a little bit of the history of that, that coalition, because I think it, you know, it's bringing stakeholders together and, and more power and numbers to, to implement an, uh, an approach like this. Yes. So the, the trauma um, coalition actually came out of the uh, foundation of Western and central New York's uh, action network, fellows action network. And, they uh, brought in Robert Ando, who was one of the principals of the original study, to speak as part of a conference about, about trauma and trauma-informed care. And it's, as you said, it's been primarily an education effort so far, and that's to get everyone on the same page. You know, we, we, here in Buffalo and across the country, we're dealing all of us with the same issues, issues of drug addiction and how do we uh, keep people who are experiencing mental illness safe while they're living within the community and the trouble in the schools and we can just go on and on. We all know what the problems are. It was uh, people in our community coming to the understanding that whatever else is going on, that at the root of a lot of these problems is trauma and trauma in childhood particularly, and that we need to understand what the study teaches us and the implications of it. And Robert Anda, as I said, was one of the principals, and I was there when he gave his speech. And at the end of his speech, he said something that's stayed with a lot of us since then. It's like, once you understand what trauma is and the implications and the impact that it has, you have to do something. So we're just trying to do something, something across systems. Absolutely. And I just want to share with our listeners some some websites that you can that you can check out. I mean, really, if you just put in adverse childhood ex, um, experiences, you'll get a lot of information as well as if you just put in trauma-informed care. Um, but the ACE study is just acestudy.org. Uh, SAMHSA.gov is another great resource, which is samhsa.gov. Um, I would p- encourage people to check out the University at Buffalo Social Work um, 
a website that has a lot of information about the work that's going on locally here in Buffalo, New York around trauma-informed care. And there is just a, a, a wealth of information out there if you and your community or just your business or your provider is interested in, in taking this approach and, and really implementing it in your work. So I want to thank Rachel and um, Lieutenant Mann for sharing their experiences and their work as stakeholders in this initiative locally here, um, but hoping that this is something that will become that universal precaution for for all uh, of our communities as well as our country and, and worldwide. So thank you so much for joining me for another episode of The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Um, if you have any questions or comments about the show, please email me at jpirovoiceamerica at gmail.com. So thank you so much for tuning in and do your part this week to provide hope to others. Tuning in to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Please join your host, Jessica Pirro, for another edition of the program next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll see you here next week.